Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week on Halloween, Kate Summerscale tells us a true ghost story. In her new book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding. Kate Summerscale is the author of the number one best-selling The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, winner of the Samuel Johnson Prize, and was adapted into a major ITV drama. Her first book, the best-selling The Queen of Wales Kay, won a Somerset Maugham Award and was shortlisted for the Whitbread Biography Award. Her third book, Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace, was a Sunday Times bestseller, while her fourth, The Wicked Boy, was shortlisted for the CWA Gold Dagger for non-fiction in 2017, and Kate was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2010. And her latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is The Haunting of Alma Fielding, A True Ghost Story. Kate, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thanks for having me. Tell us, first of all, where you first came across the story that's in this book. Yeah, I came across it. Um, I was sort of looking for a haunting to write about. I just had a, a yen to tackle that subject, and I assumed it would be sort of late Victorian, but in fact, the most compelling story I came across um, was this one, which was in a book published in the 1950s, but relating a case that took place in 1938. And the book was is now out of print, but uh, was by the ghost hunter himself, Nandor Fodor. And uh, I became very intrigued by what really went on between him and Alma Fielding, the woman he investigated. And indeed, the book is called The Haunting of Alma Fielding, but you know, you could have subtitled it The Suspicions of Mr. Fodor. It's, um, it's very <laughs> much the story of Nandor Fodor as well. Let's talk about, first of all, who he was, something of his background, and I guess how he ended up being a paranormal researcher. He was um, a Jewish-Hungarian immigrant who came to London via New York and he was a journalist and had um, studied law, so he had, he had a law degree, but his real passion was the supernatural. And to his absolute delight, he got a job as a supernatural researcher, a ghost hunter in London in 1934. And so his hobby became his career and uh, he was able to devote himself to investigating paranormal phenomena and trying to prove the existence of 
spirits and uncanny events. So let's talk about the uh, the organisation then. So the International Institute for Psychical Research, which was only one of a, a number of institutes of psychical research that were in and around London at the time. Tell us something about who they were and what they were doing. Yeah, it was um, it was the, the newest, the youngest of the uh, psychical research institutes on the scene. And they were the International Institute, where Sodor worked, was composed unusually both of spiritualists and people of a more scientific bent. So it was had an uneasy alliance of people who were convinced that the dead survived and that supernatural events were attempts of the spirits to communicate with the living, and people who were more open-minded about what the uncanny events could signify, and indeed even if, if they were objectively real or delusional. And so there was a, a, a great mixture of uh, attitudes and, and people in the Institute and it was a rather a precarious venture in that um, Fodor had to do a lot of fundraising just to, to keep it going, really. He became a bit of an impresario as well as a scientist in that he would sort of stage screenings and seances as ways of raising money while also trying to conduct a very serious empirical project to establish beyond doubt that supernatural forces existed and to also try to work out where they came from, what created them. And there's a whole group of fascinating people in and around this institute as well. Um, some people that have links to Hollywood, for instance, actors. And one woman I particularly wanted you to talk about is known as the Countess. Tell us about her. Yeah, she's Countess Weidenbrook, who came from Austria with her husband, a, a portrait painter. And she had known Rilke. She was a very literary figure, um, who wrote books and well she she wrote books she said while in trance so she would write them automatically she'd compose novels which she believed were actually written by her ancestors speaking through her and um, she was also an artist and um, she had had various spiritual experiences and came to Britain uh, basically because she was she was broke the um, the financial disasters that hit Europe in the 1920s forced her and her husband just to eke out a living in sort of bedsits in Earl's Court instead of living in, in the um, lap of luxury in a sort of Austrian schloss, as which is where she'd been brought up. And she became, she was a great friend of Nandor, Fodor's Nandy, as she called him. And, um, and he and the Countess were sort of collaborators. But her attitudes were much less sceptical than his. And um, she became quite angry with him for the way in which he treated Alma, to whom the Countess became close in the course of the investigation. And we'll come on to that in a little while. Um, this particular time, so we're talking, as you said, it's, uh, we start off in about 1934, so we're between the wars. Why is, first of all, let's talk about why spiritualism itself is so popular at this particular time. But then again, also the investigation of psychic phenomena, which obviously still goes on now, but is you know much less scientifically respectable than it once was. So let's talk about, first of all, again, you know, why was spiritualism so popular at this particular time? Yeah, spiritualism was sort of founded in the United States in the middle of the 19th century as a religion. And it, um, the basic tenet was that the, the dead survived they could communicate with the living. And if you created the right conditions, like seances, 
that they would appear and speak and even touch people in the seance circle. And it took off in England in the wake of the First World War and the flu pandemic of 1918 because of the enormous number of lives lost and um, the grief that was abroad in the country then. So I think seance circles became a source of great consolation. They probably acted in part as um, a sort of group therapy because the bereaved would gather together and they would talk about and talk to their loved ones that they had lost. And uh, so it became a sort of swept the country and became quite commonplace to sort of go to a, a seance. Mediums and psychics were written about in the press and clairvoyance. And at the same time, there was quite a, a different sort of intellectual current going on, whereby there were so many technological innovations were becoming commonplace, like uh, the telephone and even the television. But certainly, the talking pictures, uh, the radio, gramophone. And people became more sort of open to the idea that these channels of communication might even open up between the living and the dead. And technological and theoretical advances were such that it just seemed kind of plausible that we were scientists were accelerating towards discoveries that might include a way of, uh, of opening up the other world, the world of the spirit. Before we move on to, to Alma's case, let's just talk briefly about some of the other famous cases that the International Institute for Psychical Research and Fodor himself obviously investigated. One which we've we've talked about a number of times on this show before, which I absolutely adore, is of course Jeff, the uh, the famous <laughs> talking mongoose. Yes, and it seems it seems a very good match that Fodor he went to try to find Jeff. Um, because uh, the Fodor himself was a rather high-spirited, exuberant and mischievous individual. And um, Jeff the Talking Mongoose was a great sort of media sensation in the tabloid press in the early 1930s. And Harry Price, who was the most famous ghost hunter in Britain, went out to try to find him and failed. So, of course, Fodor, who was Harry Price's great rival, wanted to do better and he wrote letters to Jeff before his visit saying, dear Jeff, you know, I'm coming. To, I can't wait to meet you. I'm going to bring you chocolate. Because um, Jeff, among other things, is known to be very partial to butter and chocolate. And he was a very rude and um, outspoken and boastful mongoose who was said to, uh, to sort of flaunt his ability to speak in many languages and described himself as the fifth dimension. So Fodor went out and stayed in the farmhouse where Jeff was supposed to live. Um, and although he set up various contraptions, sort of automatic cameras to capture his image and so on, he was very disappointed to um, to not either see or hear Jeff in the course of his visit. And he, uh, he left him quite an angry note about how ungrateful Jeff had been about the chocolates and so on, and uh, his refusal to appear for him. You know, Fodor kind of seemed to veer between being very earnest and intent on finding a ghost, proof of the supernatural, being a very serious researcher, but he also had a great sense of, of fun and adventure. And a lot of the pleasure he took in ghost hunting, I think, was that it was all a bit of a lark, and he loved the imaginative weirdness of the stuff that he uh, encountered and the, the sheer sort of nerve of some of the frauds which he exposed. Um, because to his 
disappointment as often as not when he went in search of ghosts he found people dressed up in sheets <laughs> and and the like um so he was becoming increasingly frustrated by 1938 when he'd been ghost hunting for four years and really rather desperate to prove his seriousness and ability as a ghost hunter ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kate Summerscale. We're talking about her latest book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, A True Ghost Story. And Kate, so let's introduce Alma. Alma Fielding lives with her family and a lodger in a lower middle class area just outside of Croydon. Tell us who she was. She was a wife and mother, age 34. Um, she lived with her husband, Laird, a builder, um, her son, Don, who just joined his father as an apprentice, and a lodger called George, to whom she was close. Um, and she, she and Les had been married for a long while, uh, 17 years or so. And she, in, the, in February, one night in February 1938, the two of them were lying in bed when things started to um, crash against the wall, the glass lifted up, a, a light bulb, Ida down lifted off the bed, and um, they started sort of screaming for help, and Don and George came to their aid. And this sort of poltergeist activity, as 
Alma identified it, um, continued into the next day, continued when she called some reporters from the Sunday pictorial. They too witnessed weird happenings in her suburban end of terrace house. So she'd been somebody perfectly anonymous and uh, an unknown to the public. And suddenly there she was on the front page of the pictorial as this haunted woman whose house was, had been violently attacked by a poltergeist. So, a poltergeist. I knew what a poltergeist was, as opposed to a, you know, a, a ghost that walks through the wall in an old house with its head under its arm or something. It's a spirit that you know, violently throws things around a room. But I always assumed that a poltergeist was, you know, had always been a different type of ghost. So I was, I was sort of surprised to learn from the book that the appearance of poltergeists or the sort of invention, shall we say, of, of the idea of the poltergeist is again something that's very tied to a specific period of time, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you sort of cast back, you can find poltergeists written about for centuries, you know, the forces that created those particular kinds of effects of banging and throwing and so on. But I was um, surprised to learn that they were enormously popular in 1930s England, the first time the word was used in the popular press, 1926. And they were identified as a kind of lower class gangster ghost. So that poltergeists were almost spirits of the sort of disreputable, slightly shabby new modern age of aspiration and social mobility. Um, and so instead of them being the seemly ghouls in ancient castles, they were sort of violently vandalising working class homes. Um, and so that was it was very interesting to realise the sort of sociological significance of the poltergeist and the fact that it was it was a sort of force of um, subversion, of class subversion, and that they were threatening or they channeled a certain kind of air of threat that was emanating from the way from changes in, in Britain as a whole. When does Alma come to Fodor's attention? Well, he was um, told about the article in the Sunday pictorial so he read it and immediately wrote to the editor of the pictorial saying please can I have the address of this family so I can get down there and investigate and uh, he was he was given the address and and he went to Croydon and interviewed Alma and her family and he took some of his colleagues with him and between them they witnessed um, some pretty odd events that they found inexplicable by, by natural, you know, they could have no natural cause. So they were extremely excited. Um, they were sort of made a log of all the things that were going on inside the house. Fodor started to interview Alma, a process which continued over the next few weeks, actually. And, and yeah, the investigation was launched. They, he hoped, Fodor hoped that this would be the case that would make his name save the institute from financial ruin and change the course of uh, psychical science. Now, I'm keen that we don't give away too much of what happens and how the investigation goes, because this book reads like, it's absolutely gripping, it, re it reads like a, a novel, like a, like a thrilling story, you just want to know what happens next, so I, I don't want to spoil that for the readers, but perhaps let's talk about how Alma's abilities, to begin with, there's a poltergeist, but then her abilities change and develop as the investigation goes along. So what else happened? She 
she so yes at first the the, um the poltergeist it seems really quite malevolent and and unruly and um seems to be throwing things at alma and others but when fodor and his friends took her to the institute in south kensington um the poltergeist sort of became more benign and enchanting and started to produce, or enchant it, it started to produce objects. Alma seemed able to uh, make things materialise from thin air. Small items, pretty things, little glass ornaments and jewels, a perfume bottle, and um, the key. The investigators were absolutely astonished at how she was doing it, because even when they... Um, insisted that she be strip-searched before the session and dressed in a sort of a, a sewn-up body stocking. She still seemed able to produce these magical objects. And then she started to um, show other powers, like she believed that she'd been projected from a cinema in Croydon to the International Institute in South Kensington. Um, but as in her body, she was, was projected from one place to another and then returned. Uh, so she sort of flown across London astrally. <laughs> and then she seemed to repeat this feat in, in a couple of other instances. So they were rushing about trying to prove this to gather evidence. And um, Fodor and his colleagues interviewed lots of witnesses. And they also they tried to, to catch her out as well. Um, they would sort of try to trace her footsteps and see if her story stood up and whether there were places that she might have bought some of her more astonishing and miraculous productions. So there was a very strange tension there between their desire to believe in, in her and to think that they had found this most wonderful, gifted woman. And But their desire, because they needed it to be sort of Solid. They were also sort of her persecutors as well as her champions, and we're we're running around trying to um, to set traps for her and to to check whether people would corroborate her story. So it was a very complicated dance that developed, particularly between her and Fodor, about whether they were on the same side or or opposite sides, really. And you mentioned that the Countess becomes more and more distressed at. Fodor's methods and Fodor while this is going along he's starting to develop a theory as to what might be going on here but what might be going on in these sort of hauntings in general um, theories that are drawn from another at the time perceived pseudoscience that was that was developing alongside the investigation of psychic phenomena and that was psychoanalysis so what does Fodor think is is going on from a sort of psychoanalytic perspective here? Yeah the Countess I mean it's part of her uh, growing unease about the investigation was that, that Fodor was being too sort of persecutory towards Alma and too suspicious and too sort of physically intrusive in his methods but also as you say she really didn't like the theories that he was starting to come up with, first of Freudian theories, which were not just about Alma, but about supernatural activity in, in, in general and poltergeist in particular, which was that um, they might be real supernatural events, but generated not by spirits, but by the repressed unconscious wishes of, of the individuals around whom they took place. So he started looking for a trauma 
in Alma's life, um, something that had happened to her, something in her psyche which she probably had no knowledge of because she'd repressed it, buried it so surely, that was um, emanating from her in as a poltergeist force. Where the, the Countess and others in the Institute were confirmed spiritualists and they liked neither the suggestion that, that supernatural activity might have nothing to do with the spirits of the dead, but also the sexual overtones to many of these Freudian ideas, which suggested that, that there might be some sexual component as well as a strand of anger and fury in the supernatural forces emanating from people. So they were sort of base forces rather than elevated heavenly forces. Well, as I said, I don't, I don't want to go into where the where the investigation eventually ends up. So just to finish off, the book also, while this story is going on, obviously features details of the political and world historical backdrop that's going on. As you've you've already mentioned that spiritualism itself became super popular after the First World War. But the events of this book are leading up to the beginnings of of the Second World War and you sort of detail the the changes that are going across the continent, obviously, as you you know, you've already mentioned that Nandor Fodor was a um, was a Hungarian Jew, but obviously the events of this story are you know are taking place in London, a city that's you know soon to be on the end of serious bombing as well. Tell us something about the sort of background against which this story takes place. When I started um, investigating this particular case in February 1938, I was amazed to realise that there were lots of poltergeist cases around. There'd been one in Bethnal Green in the papers just a couple of weeks before this Croydon case. Um, there was another in Stornoway in the Outer Hebrides. And Alma's case, um, the Croydon poltergeist, shared a front page of the Sunday Pictorial with a big picture of a uh, cutout of Adolf Hitler shouting as he delivered a speech to his people. And the papers were not only full of poltergeists, but full of the threat of war. And it was as if the country already, this long before war actually broke out, as we as we now know, um, was, was braced for conflict. And it seemed, I realised increasingly as I read more around the history of the time and the papers, that it was a very, very jittery era. And of course, people could still remember the First World War, uh, many people, including Alma's husband, Lev, had served in that war and had been injured in it and had um, suffered various mental injuries too. Lev still woke up with trench dreams. And here they were confronting the threat, the almost certain threat, of another war. And it struck me that poltergeists were awfully close to the, the blitz that was going to come to London soon and for which, again, people were bracing themselves for aerial bombardment and preparing the country for that eventuality. And I thought that maybe with some of the outbreak of these particular kinds of violent, jumpy, rackety, working-class ghosts might well have been a, a kind of uh, expression of anxiety as well as being a sort of distraction and entertainment in the Sunday papers. They also said something about the state of mind or state of soul that the zeitgeist in Britain at the time, and particularly in London perhaps, which was um, felt itself as the sort of bullseye, become the bullseye of the German bombardment. 
And so I it started to wonder about um, ghosts as expressions of cultural, social anxiety, as well as of individual and personal anger or grief. So I've been talking to Kate Summerscale. We've been talking about her new book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.